Hello, everyone, and welcome to the True Blue Crime Investigates podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I will be your host for this episode. And welcome to True Blue Crime Investigates. While most of the cases I cover on this podcast are unsolved, this case has actually been declared partially solved by the FBI. While they believe they have the suspects responsible for this crime identified, all the suspects are deceased, and the items stolen in this case have never been recovered. They are in some cases almost priceless works of art and there remains a 10 million dollar reward for their safe return but before we get into the case let's quick cover the business side of things if you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to please like and follow the true blue crime productions facebook page more information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com and if you'd like to email me directly my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com if you can please support the show via patreon or paypal Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps, and it'll help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast, a thank-you message from the host, and some cool True Blue Crime merch. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much. Without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime Investigates. Isabella Stewart Gardner was born on April 14, 1840. She was raised as the wealthy child of a linen merchant and married the son of one of Boston's most affluent families who had made their money importing pepper from Indonesia. Together, the couple embraced a love of foreign travel and the arts and spent much of their adult life collecting works of art from some of the finest artists in the world. When her husband died from a stroke in 1898 at the age of 61, Isabella focused her efforts on building a museum to house their impressive collection of rare and valuable art. The museum, named officially the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, opened to the public in 1903. It was Isabella's dream to allow people to see some of the amazing artwork she had collected instead of keeping it locked away in a private collection where only a select few would ever see it. Isabella spent the last 20 years of her life managing the collection at the museum until she too died from complications from a stroke in 1924. She donated much of her fortune to various charities and left a sizable amount of money to be used as operating costs for the museum. But by 1982, the museum was running low on funding and and lacked modern security features such as motion sensors and CCTV cameras. Because it housed some of the most expensive works of art in the world, this made it an incredibly enticing target for art thieves, specifically local Boston area members of organized crime. The FBI uncovered a plot for a heist of artwork from the museum in 1982 that forced the staff to set aside funds for basic security measures. However, due to their limited funding, the security measures still paled in comparison to other museums in Boston. In 1990, the security procedures were still incredibly lacking, and two men took advantage and conducted a successful robbery. They stole 13 pieces of art that are valued at a half a billion dollars in today's money. This is the story of the Gardner Museum heist. The flaws in the security system at the museum were created by a perfect storm of conditions. As mentioned before, the museum lacked significant funding and much of its budget had to be spent on expensive upkeep to the building to include installing and maintaining a climate control system to protect the artwork inside. While a review of the security measures in 1988 found the museum had adequate security, it noted several weaknesses that made the museum vulnerable to a heist. 
First and foremost, the lack of funding meant that security guards at the museum were not paid well in comparison to guards at other museums. This created two problems. One, the guards were often less experienced and less incentivized to keep their job. The applicants for the position were as a whole less qualified and the turnover rate was high. There's also more susceptibility to being bribed or bought out by organized crime due to the low wages and lack of loyalty. The building itself needed some major security renovations to make it harder for someone to commit a heist. While Isabella had been involved in the design of the building, it's not likely that she had thought hard about the late 20th century criminal advancements during the process. However, she did put in place strict guidelines governing that any renovation or demolition inside the building was forbidden, and these rules made security improvements difficult, if not impossible. Finally, the artwork was not insured. Due to the value of the paintings, the cost of insurance alone exceeded the overall operating budget for the museum. Also, Isabella's will stated that none of the works of art were to be sold, removed, or replaced, so insurance money couldn't be used to buy replacement works of art if anything was stolen. St. Patrick's Day is a day of celebration and inebriation across the United States, but especially in Boston. It's one of the busiest nights for Boston police, as large crowds of drunken adults wander the streets and the department's officers have their hands full dealing with normal Boston crime and the babysitting duties of the holiday. 30 minutes after midnight on the evening of St. Patrick's Day, two men dressed as Boston police officers parked outside the entrance to the Gardner Museum. In the following 81 minutes, one of the greatest heists of all time would be completed, and 33 years later, the artwork is still missing. We'll break down the crime as best as we can, and then explore some of the theories and suspects behind the robbery. Per museum policy, there were always two security guards working the overnight shift at the museum. They were to take turns with one working the security desk, an area that had the alarm panels and the only direct alarm to the Boston PD, while the other guard roamed the building with a flashlight and a handheld radio. On duty that evening was 23-year-old Rick Abath, a man who looked more at home in a heavy metal band than as a security guard, and 25-year-old Randy Heestand. Rick had worked the overnight shift for a while, but this was Randy's first overnight shift at the museum. Rick took the first walking patrol that evening, and he noticed several fire alarms going off around the building and returned to the security room and shut off the fire alarm panel. The 1982 plot called for robbing the museum using smoke bombs to interfere with the alarm system and to create a distraction for the guards. After shutting off the fire alarms, Rick did another round on the first floor and broke policy by opening an outer door before closing it. He did so without informing Randy, who was working at the desk. According to some sources, Rick told investigators this was something he did every shift because the door had a tendency to not close all the way, and he wanted to make sure it closed correctly. But some articles contradict this and say this that because this was an alarmed door, if he did open it during his shift and on the previous evening and had been doing it for weeks, there would have been a record of it on the alarm panel printout and his supervisor would have told him to stop doing it. After Rick returned to the desk around 1 a.m., Randy took off for his hour foot patrol. At 1.20 a.m. on March 18th, two men dressed as Boston police officers rang an external buzzer. Rick saw the men through an outside mounted CCTV camera and buzzed the officers through the door and let them in. 
This was a violation of museum policy as no personnel, even police officers, were supposed to be admitted into the building without proper clearance. Rick later told investigators that the suspects had told them over the intercom that they were to, there to investigate a disturbance and Rick believed it was related to the large crowds of drunken partiers that were roaming the streets of Boston. So we'll step aside here and discuss some of the stuff that we talked about. Um, I gave the introduction as to how this museum kind of came to be because it is interesting that you know this is one of these private museums that exist in the U.S. They're, they're not state-sponsored, so they don't have a lot of funding. It's, it's funded completely through private donations and what was set aside by the owner. And again, I, I don't know if Isabella really thought out how long this funding would need to occur and things like the cost of inflation for the funding. I don't know if money was set aside that was supposed to be enough to grow along with inflation, growth in the stock market, whatever it might be to continually fund this museum, but it's clear by 1982 that just the basic operating costs have become difficult for this museum to support. And I say that because it's not as if the museum is buying and, and I guess, selling this artwork. They're not allowed to per Isabella's will. So all of the costs that are associated are staffing and building improvements slash utilities and that kind of stuff. So I think it said the operating budget for the entire year for this museum, and this is a large building in Boston, I think it was something just shy of $3 million. And when I mentioned the insurance, I think the insurance for just a year on the paintings was somewhere around three million or a little over three million so that's what i'm saying the insurance if they had paid insurance it, it would it would have doubled their operating budget which they didn't even have enough money for the regular operating budget and when i talk about these shortcomings with employees this is something that any business has to deal with and and what law enforcement deals with often is the departments that tend to have the most issues with officers oftentimes if you look at their pay scale compared to other departments they're going to be on the lower end of the pay scale and what happens is obviously the the best police officers the ones that are least likely to cause problems will go to these higher paying police departments and they'll have loyalty to these higher paying police departments there's not really a place for them to go there shouldn't be a reason for them to leave a higher paying police department to go to another one because one of the secrets of law enforcement is transferring departments. It's not as easy as it sounds. Yes, you can do it, but most departments are gonna make you go through their academy again, their FTO process again. You're starting over in seniority, so you're gonna be working all of the weekend shifts, potentially the holiday shifts. So since seniority is a big deal in law enforcement, it really does take pretty high incentive or pretty good reason for somebody to leave a department. Now there are many of those, including issues within the department or issues with administration in the department, but for the most part, what I'm saying is usually the best police officers will end up in the high paying departments and they'll end up there for their entire career. When you look at these museum guards, if you're offering just above minimum wage, yeah, it's not a difficult job. I mean, you're 
in a locked building for the entire overnight hours. It's not like it's a, a highly stressful or again, very difficult or physically demanding job. You're not out in the elements, anything like that. But still, if other museum positions like this are paying more, the better employees are going to go to these these other museums. So you're constantly having to hire people that either aren't of the highest caliber or that are only going to be there for a little bit and then you're training somebody new in. And that creates weaknesses within your security. And you know, Rick is going to come under a lot of scrutiny and we'll talk about it when we get to the suspects um, later on in this case. But just some of his behaviors to include opening that external door and he was a music school dropout, uh, obviously very susceptible to some type of a bribe or you know look the other way type of money. And I'm not saying that he did that. I'm just saying from the outside looking in, it's not as if he had the super cushy job and a ton of money and, and he was above being bought out. So just his behavior that day. And then the one other thing I'll say before we get back to the story is this fire alarm thing, I found it in several articles, but it really didn't dive into that. Oftentimes, fire alarm panels are going to be tied into your security alarm panels. Now, it doesn't it's not always the case. Sometimes they're separate. But if these fire alarms are tied into the actual security alarms, one thing that people don't always realize about fire alarms is, especially in, in buildings, whether it has a lot of Nowadays, it would be things like servers or expensive items, like in this case, paintings. It's not just a smoke alarm. A lot of these are particle alarms. So if you can introduce a large amount of, of particles into the air, and this happens a, a lot of the times when people are renovating homes or renovating large businesses where dust gets kicked up, they can set off the fire alarm. So it doesn't necessarily have to be true smoke because it said that Rick didn't find any smoke. So he thought the system was faulty. Somebody could find a way to introduce something into the air of this museum that would then create issues with this fire alarm system. And if it's tied into the security system, you've now further weakened the security of the museum. So again, while they didn't talk about this much, in the articles, I do think there's probably something going on with those fire alarms and Rick messing with the fire alarm panel prior to this robbery. But as Git got back in the story, Rick has buzzed these guys in, again, against museum policy, but they're police officers. We mentioned this is St. Patrick's Day in Boston. This is March 18th, but it's an hour after the evening of St. Patrick's Day, so it's still part of the St. Patrick's Day festivities. And there are still a bunch of drunken adults walking around the streets of Boston at this time. So it is believable that I think Rick said he thought maybe somebody jumped the exterior fence of the museum uh, while they're drunk. I mean, I've seen people do some pretty stupid stuff while they're drunk. So he probably believed it was possible and that the police were just following up on, hey, did anybody jump the fence and come into the museum? It's something we need to take a look at. So there's some rationale behind it. It's not like it was a completely quiet night and these cops showed up and said we're investigating a disturbance. So for as much as some people say it, there's indicators Rick is involved, 
I think there's a lot of the ability to explain away Rick's behaviors as well. So Rick let the men into the building at 0124 hours, so 1.24 a.m., and they immediately asked him where his partner was. And he told them that his partner was on his rounds. They ordered Rick to call Randy back to the security desk and then told Rick that he looked like a man who knew that, that they knew had an active warrant and ordered him to step away from the desk. And the desk had the only push-button alarm that was directly tied to the Boston Police Department. And this was important because, again, in the review of the, the security procedures, there was other museums in Boston that had, basically, it sounds like a hourly call-in to the police department. Basically, any time a museum guard or one of these high-security buildings, when their guards did a round, uh, on the hour, every hour, they had to call into the police department and notify the department that all was well with the building and if a certain amount of time passed where a call didn't come in the department would dispatch police officers to investigate and but that was not part of the museum policy here the, basically other than the phone lines you know a direct phone call to the police department the only way that Boston PD had any idea something was wrong at the museum was the single push-button alarm at the security desk. So once they got Rick away from the desk, they knew that there was very little likelihood that there was going to be a police response. And so once Rick was away from the desk, the suspects detained him and waited for Randy to return and then detained him as well. Both men were secured via their hands and feet, and duct tape was placed over their eyes and head. The guards then marched the men into the basement of the museum, where they were secured to a pipe and a workbench. After removing the suspects' wallets and reading off their names, dates of birth, and home addresses, the suspects threatened to find the men and harm them if they provided details of the robbery to the police. However, they were also promised a reward in one year time if they maintained their silence with the police. At 1.34 a.m., with the guards secured, the entire museum was open to the suspects. They waited an additional 13 minutes, possibly to ensure that the silent alarm had not been triggered by Rick during their entrance into the building, and then got to work stealing artwork. And this is something you will see from time to time. They're actually going to be able to see the movement, for the most part, of the suspects by these IR motion sensor trips that gets stored on a computer so they're going to realize these guys hung out for a bit and part of that is they think it's possible and they don't know that rick could have triggered the silent alarm which would be sending the police to the museum they don't want to be in the middle of stealing this artwork not paying attention when the building gets surrounded by squad cars so they're likely watching for any type of police response during these 13 minutes. And once they realize enough time has passed that if a silent alarm was triggered, the police should be there by then. Once that t window of time passes, they believe they're in the clear and they got to work stealing this artwork. And as I mentioned, their movements were captured via the IR motion detectors that alerted the security system when someone got too close to a high value painting. An audible sensor also sounded that was in turn smashed by the suspects. So this is a very open museum. This is not one where everything's behind glass and locked up and, and everything. Uh, Isabella wanted people to be able to, 
to see these paintings as they were uh, without glass between them, but they did have sensors that if a regular patron during the day got too close to a painting, it would trigger the sensor in an audible alarm telling the person to back away or whatever it might be. And so the suspects are actually going to set these off because, of course, they're getting close enough to take the paintings and they're going to smash this audible alarm in the rooms where they're taking the paintings. And the men got to work cutting the most priceless works of art out of their frames. They started with Rembrandt's 1633 painting, The Storm on the Sea of Galilee, and his work from the same year titled A Lady and a Gentleman in Black. They removed a large self-portrait of Rembrandt, but left it after realizing it was painted on wood, so it would be too hard to transport. We're going to talk about it, but these guys arrived in a little hatchback. This is probably a late 80s, early 90s, probably a foreign little hatchback, so you're not fitting a four foot by six foot whatever it is self-portrait of Rembrandt painted on wood you can't roll it up you can't fold it up or whatever it might be so while they thought it was originally on canvas they could just cut it out Uh, they realized it was wood so they left that behind and instead removed a small self-portrait of the famous Dutch artist as well as two other classic works by the Dutch artists Vermeer and Flink and in researching this, I actually found out this this Flink guy, he was a student of Rembrandt, and his paintings often resembled that of Rembrandt's, and I think whatever painting they took of Flink's, some people originally believed that it was a Rembrandt. So, you know, it's in the Hall of Dutch Artists, because both Flink and, and Rembrandt are Dutch, but it's unknown whether these guys realize this was a, a student of Rembrandt, so therefore the painting's not worth as much or if they just took it because it was associated with the Rembrandts and it's actually going to be this Vermeer painting that's the most expensive one that they they ended up taking and before leaving the room one of the suspects grabbed an ancient Chinese vase known as a goo the suspects then entered another gallery at 1:51 a.m. and tried to steal a flag that had belonged to Napoleon Bonaparte but became frustrated by the number of screws and instead removed just the metal eagle from the flag support pole. The suspects turned back to the artwork and stole five sketches from the French artist Edgar Degas and stole their last painting by French artist Edouard Manet from the museum's first floor blue room. With 13 priceless works of art, including the vase and the eagle, the suspects checked on the guards before heading to the security room and removing all the VHS tapes that had been actively recording the robbery. They also grabbed a printout of the motion alarms they triggered as they walked through the galleries, but did not know that that data was stored on a computer hard drive as a backup. It took the suspects two trips to deliver the stolen artwork to their getaway vehicle, a small hatchback parked on the street outside the museum. When they left the museum for the last time at 2.45 a.m., They had conducted the largest robbery in American history in just 81 minutes and without harming a single person. The guards were unable to escape their bindings, and when their relief arrived and failed to establish communication via the intercom, she contacted the security director. The only way to enter their museum was via the secure entrance requiring someone to be buzzed in and a back door for which the director had the only key. After unlocking the back door, the morning security guard and the security director immediately realized something was wrong as they could see empty frames on the floor and tools left out. 
The director handed the unarmed guard one of the suspect's abandoned crowbars, and the two walked to the security room and contacted Boston PD. Unaware of the condition of the guards or if the suspects were still in the building, the security personnel waited for uniformed officers to arrive and search the building. Officers located the two security guards in the basement and took photographs of them before removing their bindings and the duct tape around their eyes and head. And this is something we've talked about through numerous cases now. The last thing that these two unarmed security personnel want to do is is walk through an active crime scene and potentially come across the suspects and become victims themselves. I mean, the worst fear, nobody's heard anything from these security guards now in several hours. So their worst fears is that somebody killed these guards. There's also the possibility that the guards themselves were in on it and took the paintings and left. And so these two security personnel, they did the right thing by contacting police and letting police conduct the search because if police come across the suspects, then there's going to be a, a resolution to this incident. Uh, but as it is, the police do find the guards. They're unharmed, but still bound up down in the basement of the museum where the, the suspects left them. And the security director and museum staff compiled a list of the stolen artwork. The initial loss was deemed to be around $200 million in 1990, but due to inflation and the rising cost of rare artwork, the total value of the missing paintings is estimated to be be between 500 to 600 million dollars today. Almost half of the total loss is attributed to the painting by Dutch artist Vermeer titled The Concert. The painting is so valuable because it's believed that Vermeer only produced 34 paintings in his career. At around 250 million dollars in value, it is believed to be the single most valuable piece of stolen artwork in the world. Most of the other value lies in the two Rembrandt paintings, with the larger painting, The Storm on the Sea of Galilee, valued at around $140 million. And the other paintings combined are worth another 100 to $200 million or so, including the sketches, vase, and eagle. As investigators were brought around the museum, the curator found it odd that while the suspects scored it big with the Vermeer and the Rembrandts, the other art they stole was not nearly as valuable, and several high-value works, to include works by Raphael, and Michelangelo were untouched. It seemed the suspects were either just lucky enough to steal the Vermeer and the Rembrandt, which were two of the most expensive paintings, or at least had some limited knowledge of the value of those paintings, and just grabbed other items they thought could be valuable. It was clear to investigators that the criminals were adept in carrying out a robbery, but woefully unknowledgeable about the value of some of the paintings. They were likely looking for career criminals with ties to organized crime that were looking for a big score to either fund their organization or to be used as leverage to lessen a sentence for a higher member of the organization. And we're going to talk about this kind of at length in the suspect and theory section coming up here, but basically it was not uncommon for organized crime syndicates to steal items of value, not per se for their monetary value, but because they knew that they could use these items as leverage. They're, they're irreplaceable items. So whether it be the federal government or the owners themselves had such pull that these items were often used to try to barter for either the release of high-ranking mafia members or you know to lessen their sentences to a certain degree because 
this was one of the ultimate ransom. It wasn't a person. It wasn't a, you know kidnapping for this kind of stuff, but they were holding on to something of such extreme value that people were willing to make deals in order to get these items back. So this is another reason why the FBI thought some of this artwork was taken when it wasn't really that valuable is because while the guys wouldn't know that per se, they also weren't necessarily looking for just the highest value items. They were looking for anything that got them some level of leverage. And the more artwork they took, the better. But of course, they can't take all of it. They brought this little hatchback, uh, inconspicuous type of vehicle. So they're going to take you know these 13 pieces of artwork. And again, the belief is that they're going to use it as some type of leverage to uh, force authorities when it comes to these prison sentences. And while Boston PD had jurisdiction in the case, the FBI stepped in immediately, knowing that in all likelihood the artwork would be transported and potentially sold outside of Boston and possibly outside the U.S. The scene was processed, but since the museum was open to the public and the artwork is regularly maintained by museum employees, fingerprints and shoe prints did not help locate any suspects. So this is where these public crime scenes, we talk about this from time to time, whether it be a house where somebody hosts a lot of parties or whether it be something like this where you have a public space. Forensic evidence is only as good as the limitations that can be brought about by that evidence. So if you're talking about a private residence in which typically five people live in it at all times, and yes, they might have relatives or friends over from time to time, finding somebody's prints outside of that group of friends or relatives is pretty damning evidence. However, in a public place where anybody can come in during the day and walk around and potentially deposit biological evidence of some sort in that public space, it no longer holds the same amount of weight. So this is going to be a very difficult crime scene for investigators to hone in on any specific suspects. Now, if they do find somebody either with the stolen artwork or find evidence somehow to link somebody to the crime, finding their fingerprints on the frames, finding their fingerprints on some of these tools left behind, that would provide some pretty solid evidence. But just as a whole, processing this scene is going to probably produce a whole lot of evidence that doesn't have a whole lot of value, if that makes sense. And the FBI did look closely at several leads, starting with the idea that the robbery was aided from the inside, with Rick Abath playing the role of a helpful victim. As mentioned before, the security guards were paid just above minimum wage, and Rick was a music school dropout. He worked the job to pay rent and support his even more low-paying life as an unknown rock band member. His behavior on the night of the robbery and the previous evening of opening a side exterior door was a violation of policy and extremely suspicious to investigators. They also found it suspicious that he had tampered with the alarm panel prior to the robbery. And while his tampering was limited to the fire alarm panel, there did appear to be some tampering with the motion detection devices as well, as the suspects were known to have removed a piece of artwork from the blue room, but no motion alarms occurred inside this room. The system was checked out later and found to be working just fine, and it had actually recorded Rick's movements during his patrol before the robbery, leading investigators to wonder if Rick had tampered with the motion alarms as well, 
but failed to turn off ones in the other galleries where artwork was stolen. So this is one of the confusing aspects of the case, and this is just another part of the story that puts suspicion on Rick is, again, I mentioned I don't know if this fire alarm panel was tied into the security panel, tied into these IR detectors, and this is a case where some of the IR detectors worked correctly, and others, these ones in the blue room, did not work correctly that night. But it wasn't as if they never worked correctly. They worked that night when Rick walked through, and when they had a security expert look at the system, they said there's no reason that it should not have recorded these suspects in the blue room. So they do, to this day, wonder if somebody tampered with the, the IR motion panel and then somehow returned it to working status afterwards and whether this was part of a plan and they just didn't do it for the other ones or failed to do it for the other ones or while Rick was messing with the fire alarm panel if he accidentally turned off the one for the IR cameras in the blue room. So there's still a lot of question or speculation about why some alarms worked and some didn't that night. But Rick has maintained his innocence over the years, and under immense pressure and investigation by the FBI, he has never changed his story, and investigators have never found any direct evidence linking him to the crime. In fact, one FBI agent claimed he found Rick too incompetent to have been involved in the crime. And that's you know, something we do hear or see a lot, is when somebody becomes a suspect for a crime, they have to have the capabilities to, to carry this out. And if we look at Rick, again, if he's doing this and he's has been bribed or bought out or whatever it might be, the FBI would have likely found some evidence of that bribe, of that money being transferred to him at some point. And so honestly, as I investigate this, I've watched a couple documentaries on it, and at first, you know, Rick does not look the part of a squeaky clean security guard, so I think that doesn't help him either. But the more you look into it, the more I think he was just susceptible to a lot of bad employee decisions, is I guess the best way to put it, that you know maybe some a higher paid, better trained security guard would not have made that evening. So it, it, it falls as it often does. It's either incompetency or criminality. We, with Rick, there's still a question there. The FBI has never officially cleared him as a suspect, but they've never found anything directly linking him either in all these years. So most of the focus of the FBI investigation is centered around the involvement of the Boston Mafia and their potential ties to the Irish Republican Army. The crime occurred well before the ceasefire agreement and during some of the most active years for the Irish Republican Army. If you guys don't know, Irish Republican Army, they were a militia group that was fighting against England's involvement in Northern Ireland. They thought that all of Ireland should be a free country and because Northern Ireland still remained Protestant and part of Great Britain, they saw that as... You know, somewhat of a illegal occupation, however you want to call it, and they, they rose up against uh, the British control of Northern Ireland. They committed terrorist acts, bombings, murders, that kind of stuff to try to force England to give up Northern Ireland. Well, they had close ties to a lot of Irish-American crime families, including the Boston Mafia families, 
And so there was some belief that because this is during the time period in which there's a lot of activity by the IRA, and they were known to commit high-profile robberies and other financially motivated crimes in order to fund their activities, that really it wasn't outside the realm of possibility that the IRA could have worked with the Boston Mafia and their Irish ties to pull off the robbery. And a man named Whitey Bulger, who was the leader of the Winter Hill Gang in Boston, was a staunch supporter of the IRA, and he was looked at, but he was actually known to have launched his own investigation into the crime because it occurred on his turf and he felt like he was owed tribute by whatever organization conducted the operation without his consent. So while the FBI honed in on other organized crimes families, there are some who still believe the IRA obtained the artwork via Whitey and the artwork is currently in Ireland. So again, if, if you're the mastermind of this crime or you're running the family that masterminded this crime, you can, you can look at Whitey's behaviors two ways. You can say, it's either legitimate, somebody came into his backyard and committed a crime upwards of, at that time, probably close to a, a quarter of a billion dollars, he's going to want some type of payment for that. I know we talked about in the, the Pierre Hotel heist how the guys that did that crime in New York had to get the blessing and work with the New York crime family who operated in the area of the, the Pierre Hotel. Same thing here. If, if this was a rival mafia family if this was a longtime career criminal that knows this is whitey bulger's territory their quote-unquote rules would have meant somebody should have approached whitey and and offered him a cut of the robbery proceeds in order to conduct this crime in his backyard so it's again it's one of two things either that didn't happen and this investigation is legit because he wants payment for a crime in his backyard or he does this to make it appear like he has no idea who did this and when in reality he did so there's some that believe it's a there's some that believe it's b those that believe that it's b that he just launched this investigation to cover up his actual involvement they believe that that points strongly to the fact that this was done at the behest of the ira and that this artwork could be still in ireland to this day and a letter sent to the museum in 1994 claimed the criminals were open to negotiating for the stolen artwork, and the author agreed to act as an inter intermediary. They claimed the artwork was stolen to help reduce a prison sentence, and it was no longer needed, and they wanted to facilitate the return of the artwork. The author was asking for $2.6 million in commission for the return of the artwork, and immunity from prosecution, as they did not know the identity of those responsible and didn't want to go to prison for being the middleman. It was said that the author presented facts only known to the museum and the FBI when the letter was received, lending credibility to the authenticity of the letter. The letter included a demand for a coded message to be printed in the Boston Globe, but after the message was printed, the writer sent one more letter claiming they felt the investigation was too big and they were backing out and no other correspondence ever arrived. So this is just one of those in interesting wrinkles I, I think if it wasn't for the holdback information that only the museum and the fbi knew that was included in this letter I, I think this would go along with other hoax ransom letters when something big like this happens but you look at the timing of it, it was four years after the crime it makes more sense that the crime was conducted hoping to use this as leverage at some point 
However, they no longer needed the paintings as leverage. So now four years later, they, they don't want to get caught selling this on the open market. They don't want to get caught possessing it. So they want to try to make some money off of their crime in the way of returning this for reward and immunity from prosecution. And who knows how far that would have gone, but it's pretty clear that whoever wrote this letter, they got cold feet and, and decided to pull the plug. So unfortunately, an opportunity in 1994 to reclaim this artwork, while it was probably still in rather decent condition, was lost if this in fact was not a hoax. And the FBI continued to investigate the case throughout the 1990s and early 2000s, and by 2013, they told the American public that they believed they knew who was responsible for the heist and named an organized crime family out of Boston run by a boss named Carmelo Merlino. By 2015, the FBI stated they would not name who they felt was responsible for the heist, but they strongly believed that the two men that committed the robbery were dead. The FBI investigation of the crime family began with the leaked robbery plan from 1982. A man named Luis Royce was under investigation for an unrelated art theft when they discovered a plan to steal art from the Gardner Museum. While Royce was in jail at the time of the museum heist, the FBI believed he passed on his information of security weaknesses to other members of the Merlino gang who then plotted their own robbery. While the FBI never officially names the suspects, there are two men, Robert Garante and Robert Gentile, who were associates of the Merlino gang that were looked at heavily. Garante died in 2004, and his widow told the FBI in 2010 that her late husband had possessed some of the stolen artwork but gave it to Gentile before he lost his battle with cancer. The FBI raided Gentile's house and found a hidden area under a false floor in his shed and learned from Gentile's son that the area had flooded around 2010 and his father had been upset about damage to some items he had stored there. A copy of the Boston Herald from the day after the Gardner heist was found in Gentile's basement, along with a list of the stolen artwork and its reported value. Gentile was subjected to a polygraph regarding the stolen artwork and reportedly failed, but his lawyer claimed the large number of investigators in the room made Gentile nervous and that is why he failed. The room was cleared and during a second test he was asked about seeing his friend Garante with one of the stolen paintings and he stated he had seen his friend with the stolen artwork from the museum and the polygraph indicated that he was telling the truth. This led FBI investigators to believe Gentile may have just had knowledge of the robbery but was not actually involved. They looked at other members of the crime family and landed on another criminal named Bobby Donati. They were pointed towards Bobby by master art thief Miles Connor Jr., who was in jail at the time of the heist. He told authorities that he and Bobby had cased the museum together, and Bobby had shown special interest in the eagle on the Napoleon flag. The reason for the robbery was to gain leverage in order to reduce sentences of various high-ranking members of Boston crime families that were serving time in 1990. According to some sources, Bobby was in the middle of a gang war, and organized the robbery to try and gain favor with some of the families that were after him, but he was murdered in 1991 before he could use the paintings as leverage. Bobby was close friends with Robert Garante, which would explain how the stolen artwork ended up with Garante and was then seen by Gentile years later. This was further backed up by an investigation by the FBI in the mid-90s. 
The art thief, Miles Connor Jr., had told them he could get the paintings back if they reduced his sentence, but because Miles was in prison, his ability to produce evidence was hindered. So Connor told them to look into criminal art and antiquities dealer named William Youngworth. The FBI raided William's residence and store and found no evidence linking him to the Gardner heist. But in 1997, an investigative reporter stated he met with a source, whom many believed to be Youngworth, who took him to a warehouse and showed him what he believed to be the storm of the sea in Galilee, and it had cut marks on the edges consistent with it being cut out of its frame. The informant told the reporter that five men were behind the heist and Bobby Donati was one of the robbers. Paint chips were provided to the investigative reporter, claiming to be from one of the Rembrandts, but the paint samples didn't match, however they could not have been ruled out as coming from the Vernier painting. The FBI learned of the possible location for the art and raided the warehouse in late 1997, but the artwork had already been moved. More proof of the involvement of Bobby Donante and Robert Garante came when investigations into a 1991 murder of a Mafia member named Jimmy Marks also led investigators to close the net on the two men. Robert's widow pointed to a photo of Marks in 2015 and told investigators that her husband, Robert Garante, had killed Marks just 11 months after the robbery. Marks had been telling family members before the heist that he was about to be involved in something big and it's possible that Marks was a liability and was silenced by Robert in the months following the robbery. So I know that was a lot to take in. Uh, the FBI, this is one of those cases where there's a lot of information out there about these different investigations, but there's no conclusive report. I really wish that there was. I wish the FBI put something together saying this is what they believe is the most likely scenario because there's a lot of different accusations out there. At the end of the day, if you read between the lines, it seems to be the FBI believes that Bobby Donate and possibly this, this Robert Garante were the two guys that conducted the robbery of the Gardner Museum. And this is backed up by you know, some logic that makes sense in regards to what was going on in Bobby Donati's life at that point, and then some eyewitness testimony that kind of matches up to Garante having this artwork after Bobby Donati was murdered. That would also make sense that somebody was trying to return this artwork because it was stolen for one reason and that after Donati was murdered that reason didn't exist anymore. So that 1994 letter with the holdback information in it could have been from somebody like Robert Garante that was trying to make some money off of this crime and and stay out of prison for it and then when that falls apart it ends up in this art dealer's warehouse that after he shows it to an investigative reporter he realizes it needs to be moved and potentially it's moved to robert garante's place he hides it in that space under the shed which floods in 2010 which causes him to get extremely upset and if that's the case, unfortunately, it's possible that these priceless works of art were destroyed, uh, at least some of them, and we may never know that. But that's the true sad case with this. With all the suspected individuals in this case dead, the location of the stolen artwork may have died with them. It's also the possible the artwork was stored in a location such as the hidden cache under Bobby Gentle's shed and was damaged beyond repair when the space flooded. Now, they're 
remains that $10 million reward for the return of the stolen artwork and a separate $100,000 reward for the return of the Metal Eagle. All of the statute of limitations on the theft have expired, so hopefully someday someone will stumble across these priceless works of art and find themselves some nice walking around money and the museum will be whole again. And, and I say that because actually if you attend this museum today, this Gardner Museum, the frames from these missing paintings were put back up on the wall. If, if you remember, Isabella's will strictly stated that these paintings could not be replaced could not be sold, could not anything like that. The museum was supposed to stay basically in the same exact condition from the time that she opened this this museum. She wanted to be this time capsule type place. So with this artwork missing, all it is now is these frames and little indicators as to what was supposed to be uh, shown there. And so if someday by some miracle this artwork is recovered like i said somebody is going to find themselves 10 million dollars richer and that's good for them and then they'll be able to put these pieces of art back into this museum and, and the public's going to be able to see them again which would be an amazing end of the story but as for now that is the story of the gardner museum heist so thank you guys for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. So that's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.